Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Certified Forgotten. We are still, and forever and always, the only podcast that we're aware of that talks about horror films with 10 or fewer reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. I am one half of your Matt hosts. I am Matt Monagle. I am joined by my friend, Matt Donato, uh, who has watched a movie recently, which normally would not be something I would say about him, but is kind of a big deal because you've been navigating a few major life events. And I think there was a week where you didn't watch a movie, which is absolutely wild to me. Oh, no, it was like two and a half weeks. It was like that was the longest spell since I started writing about movies almost a decade ago that I haven't seen a screening or written about something. It was like a dead period because Trip to Austin got a new tattoo and played the Texas Chainsaw video game, went right into moving chaos, went right into my parents visiting during moving chaos. So uh, I'm fucking tired. Now, I got to ask real quick being away from movies for two weeks was it one of those like i missed it i can't wait to go back or were you like oh i've made some questionable decisions because i actually feel right for the first time in years so i hit that point where i could either walk away forever or like this is the thing i can go back and do forever there there was no middle ground it was either one or the other uh so i came back in the most matt donato fashion possible and i watched and reviewed cocaine shark amazing well it's good to see you hitting the ground running bud uh, we are really, really excited to to talk to this week's guest, but I'm also going to say, we'll talk about it later. I'm really excited to talk about this movie. This one caught me by surprise. And when we talk about this in about half an hour's time, I'm, I'm gonna, not going to bury the lead. I'm going to have glowing things to say, and I'm really, really glad that he brought it. So Donato, will you please introduce our guest for this week? Yeah, I'm going to make this one easy. Uh, I have wanted to have this conversation and guest for a long time, and it finally worked out. And that's how podcasts go. You just kind (laughs) of, whenever the time is right, the time is right. So a man who needs no introduction, and I do legitimately mean that, uh, screenwriter, fantasy author, reformed film critic, C. Robert Cargill. Welcome to Certified Forgotten, and thank you. Hi. How's everybody doing? I think we're doing good. How Um, How are you doing? Great question. How are you doing? I'm doing much better. Um, <laughs> I just came off of an 84 day shoot uh, where we were staying in London and it was uh, it was a hard shoot. It's one of those that just, you know, uh, grinds you down. And uh, we're really proud of what we got. But uh, I, I, I could not wait to get home. And I spent the last two weeks immersed in my home and uh, painting in my garage and watching horror movies and just uh, enjoying getting back to the writer's life and not being the filmmaker's life for a little while. And so I'm, I'm actually in probably the best place mentally I've been in a couple of years. I'm just in it, just uh, vibing and really enjoying uh, being home. We're going to try not to ruin that on this episode. Yeah. <laughs> we'll give it a shot. I, you know, I, I love, um, I, have made the transition as you have as well over to blue sky. When this episode goes up, who knows if that'll still be the program of choice. Look, whatever for, for this week, for right now, it feels like a really good platform that I know the three of us are particularly excited about, but it's been really kind of fun to watch you kind of talking about and tweeting about this break that you're taking from your multiple other careers that you have, because you're sharing photos of your Warhammer minis. You're talking about like spending a little bit of time around the house. And I think, I think that anybody who knows screenwriters or is involved in the industry knows that it can be a periods of famine, but also periods of feast where you're in production, where you're working on a lot of things. And I've talked to at least a few other folks that are like, you know, hey, I don't want this writer strike to go on, right? Like, I don't want things to continue, but I'm actually, I have, it's given me a break in my schedule. It's given me some time to focus on me. And I'm glad to see all the writers I know kind of getting a breather between projects, if nothing else. 
Yeah, yeah. It's uh, uh, it, we don't want the strike to go on. We want the strike to be over. But the fact that I was able to come home and not have any meetings and no phone calls and no, oh, hey, Cargill, so we heard you just got back from your movie. I know you're a little tired, but can you squeeze in a meeting? We're not allowed to take meetings. So, you know, that's been able to uh, be off the table. And, yeah, I, I've been writing pretty consistently over the last few years and working, you know, pretty tirelessly. So to be able to have that brief break has been very, very uh, good for my soul. Um, and yeah, I've been talking about it. Uh, you mentioned Blue Sky. Blue Sky, I, I think Blue Sky is actually going to be around a little bit uh, because it's not it's like everybody keeps talking about it like it's like threads or it's like Twitter. And really, the whole concept is very different. It's a whole new protocol. And the idea is that it can be several things and that you can create your own little you can take the protocol and create your own little world and go, look, we don't want. Uh, we want a politics-free environment here. You're allowed to talk about life, allowed to post pictures of your dogs. You're not allowed to use the words Republican or Democrat in a sentence. Um, we're going to create that over here. Uh, and you can, you know, create them for your hobbies. I I know the minute that this protocol separates, there's going to be a film Twitter community that just goes, all right, it's all movies all the time. It's the only thing you're allowed to talk about here. Uh, you can post your other stuff, like life stuff that you're doing with movies, but this is where all the movie people hang out. Um, and, uh, I look forward to trying that out, but yeah, we're loose guys, a, a very cool, Hey, let's start over guys. Let's, let's take everything we've learned from the past 15 years of social media and, uh, try not to be dicks to each other. And I think that is a great, great concept for a community. Yeah. I kind of love the idea of having those subsections within a platform like that, because, you know, one of the things about Twitter is people get a brand, no matter what, whether you try to or not, like you just start tweeting about a certain thing over and over again, and people ascribe a brand to you. Like it just becomes, this is you now. And yes. Demon win. <laughs> exactly. Like demon win. <laughs> but like, I also like it. Like, listen, I go on there at, on, or when I was going on Twitter all the time, it's like, I go on as a film critic. But I'm also like, hey, I kind of like sports, too. I'm one of those film critics that also has the sports side. And I also like like to post about beers. And there would be those people that kind of go like, well, I follow you for the film. I don't want to see your other stuff. And it's like I had I was torn between do I sacrifice all these other things, like talking about things I love just to stay branded? Or do I sacrifice the follows to be like, yeah, I like this stupid, weird beer that no one cares about. And the idea of Blue Sky having the ability to like go into your film space and that's where you can do that. Go into maybe I have a beer space or something like that. It's really exciting because and I think that's why Blue Sky is, again, the most viable solution at this point. Yeah. Yeah, it's talking talking about fresh starts is always fun. There are people that I've been following for years on Twitter, which is totally fine. That that didn't and didn't engage with me, didn't follow me back. It doesn't matter. I'm excited to be able to support their writing and see it. That have followed me in the first week on Blue Sky, and it's just it does. It's that I've seen people like I don't want to say skeeting about it, but I mean skeeting about it, and basically look. look let's let's just get this out of the way. It's ugh. Jake Tapper said it on CNN. He called it a skeet. It's official. It's written in stone. Whether you like it or not. It is skeeting now. Y'all skeet, 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 skeet. Everyone of a certain age finds that hilarious. Everyone of a different age, it means nothing to them. That, that's totally fine. But it, it, it's great. It, it's interesting. And I feel sort of like the film community, um, and I don't want to over be too over sentimental about it, but I feel like folks are sort of rediscovering each other, right? Like there's a lot of people that it's been sort of a professional, mutually assured destruction which sounds you know but like i have to follow you and you have to follow me because we work in the same space we work with the same people and there are all these kind of reasons and so i feel like i'm i'm feeling connections too and i'm, I'm seeing connections with folks they're like 
why, why do I want to like, what is the relationship that we have? What, you know, what do I want to learn from you? What do you want to learn from me? And it's kind of a, a nice little reset. And I'm, I'm liking that. It's, it's delightful. In fact, I'll, I'll, I, I had somebody follow me the other day on blue sky who had never followed me on Twitter. Who's someone I've technically known in the community for like 20 years. Um, a list director, you know, somebody who I knew back when, when they were first coming up. Uh, but we, we've never really stayed in touch. And I was their third follow on Blue Sky. And I was like, what? And uh, not going to lie, uh, I could have gotten hit by a truck that day and it still would have been a good day. Um, you know, that feeling's pretty great that it's, you know, somebody who you really admire acknowledges you. And uh, and it's a really good feeling. So, um, yeah, I, ha- so, yeah, I had I a. Uh, it is. Yeah, I was going to say I had a director do the same thing where like an A-list director who followed me and unfollowed me on Twitter. And I was like, oh, okay, all right, that's fine. But then again, same thing you, you just said, like was one of my first Blue Sky followers. And I was like, okay, that's really cool. And I, I, like, I'm like, I'm, I'll take it. Yeah, it's just that interesting thing that you're both saying of just the rediscovery. And like, it's like a second chance. And it's like, all right, I hope I don't fuck this one up. Yeah. <laughs> I have only one celebrity that I look for on every new social media platform. And so far he's followed me on all of them. And I'm very grateful. And that is Rick Perry, the production designer from Dimension 20. He is the only go. person that I want to form a connection to. His, uh, his D&D minis that he creates for that show are beautiful. So, uh, all right. You know what? Hey, I could, I could talk about blue skies and skeeting all day long, but <laughs> that is not explicitly the purpose of this podcast. So I want to jump the, the, get the train back on track here and talk a little bit about your history with the horror genre, Cargill. You've talked for a very long time in a lot of public places about horror, about what you love, about what you know inspires you as a creator, as a film filmmaker and writer yourself. You've certainly gone on record about the horror that you find influential. But I'm curious, you know, you have described yourself as as a sci-fi guy, as a fantasy guy more. Um, I was it always horror for you? Was that always the genre? And you were like, this is a place where I have stories to tell. Or did that come later? Were there other types of, of books and screenplays and other things that you had in mind when you were coming up and we were thinking about, I want to be a writer, I want to tell stories? Uh, it was always genre. Um, it's always been genre. And that's that's kind of the key is that um, everything that uh, I've done in one space or the other, whether it be science fiction, whether it be fantasy, uh, it's always horror adjacent. Um, it's always got elements of horror to it. It's got moments of extreme violence that are meant to be shocking and horrific and not to be enjoyed. Um, uh, and that's always been at the core of it. Uh, my very first story I ever wrote when I was five years old was a Scooby-Doo story. Um, you know, I wrote a Scooby-Doo episode and illustrated it. Um, and then when I was eight years old, um, I had this big crush on Drew Barrymore and uh, my uh, uh, my aunt bought me a copy of Firestarter with her on the cover. And uh, uh, my parents are like, you gave our son a Stephen King novel. It's like, well, he's he's not going to read it. He's just going to look at the picture of the girl on the front. I read that fucker cover to cover three times. And by the end, I was like, ah, oh, the Stephen King guy, he gets to do this for a living. That's what I want to do. And so that was kind of the birth of that. And at every point of a genesis of me as a writer, horror was always at the forefront. So, you know, I was writing horror stories and writing stuff like that when I was younger. And then I I met a friend named Alex Miller in middle school who was big into comic books and really big into horror movies, something I really wasn't allowed to watch at home. And I would go over and have sleepovers at his house every other Friday night. 
And what we would do is we would sit down and we'd read comic books. And after his parents went to bed, he'd be like, all right, we're watching Friday the 13th, part one through four. Let's go. And so, you know, I, that was my education that way. Um, then I remember reading, uh, I was reading film reviews, uh, regularly because I was a big movie obsessed kid, always movie obsessed. Uh, and it's partly my parents' fault in, uh, in a good way. Like, uh, I grew up in, I'm an, I'm a military brat. Well, I grew up in the Air Force and, um, there are security police just all over the place. It's just part of your life. You live behind fences. You know, when you come and go on base, you have to show an ID card no matter how old you are. Um, and there was always a security police officer stationed at the movie theater on base. So my parents would be like, okay, well, we're going to go shopping. We'll, we'll leave Chris on the, you know, uh, to see the matinee and, uh, we'll go grocery shopping and pick him up on the way back. And so when I'm five years old, I'm being dropped off at the movie theater to watch movies alone. And so, you know, I grew up that way. And then my parents were movie obsessed. I didn't realize they were nerds until as much later in life because they don't present as nerds. I thought it was very normal that families got together and went to see the new Star Trek movie on opening day. I thought that was something every family did, just mm -hmm. like you would see Star Wars or Indiana Jones. And no, it turns out my dad was a big Star Trek dork. And, and uh, you know, I grew up reading the books that he had as a kid. And they were, you know, the novelizations of the Planet of the Apes movies and things like that. So, you know, that was kind of my education. And, and I was hooked. And so I remember reading this movie review because I was always looking for something. And it was uh for uh return of the living dead part two and uh i remember reading it and realizing wait somebody got to go and see this and get paid to write about it i want to fucking do that that sounds rad um and it is in theory um <laughs> um uh it's uh but so that that so that was kind of a thing and then growing up uh, in high school, I didn't know what kind of writer I wanted to be. I wanted to be a film critic. I wanted to be a novelist. I wanted to be a screenwriter. I could never make up my mind. So I've been super blessed in that I've gotten to do all three um, and and be as successful as I've been at all three. You know, so I feel incredibly blessed. Uh, the the child uh, in me is very happy that he got to do all the things. Uh, so uh, and uh, yeah, so. But yeah, so that's where that's where horror started with me. And then, of course, um, the thing is about horror is the horror filmmakers, the horror writers um, are all amazing people. You know, there's very few jerks. There's very few assholes in the community. And those that are get run out pretty quickly and they end up lonely bastards isolated off on their own. Um, and so it's very welcoming. So once you start getting to know them, you become part of the family and you become part of the community. And then that just continues. Um, and so I have, you know, I, as a film critic, I supported a lot of horror filmmakers. Uh, you know, horror filmmakers always feel marginalized until recently. They were very marginalized. Um, and so the fact that I was so uh, I was working on a big mainstream, widely read site and was pimping indie horror and getting behind young filmmakers uh, when other publications weren't yet uh i got to get to know them and i got to come up with them and then when i went off to make my own movie they all came out for me and they all supported me um when we had the first screening of sinister in uh la the first la screening half of the i knew half of the audience and they were all horror filmmakers and i was like what are you guys doing here and they're like this is <laughs> we're out here to support you and it it it, it touched me deeply um and so many of them are still friends of mine to this day. 
Uh, so it's uh, horror has always kind of been at the center of what I've been doing. And uh, and I'm really happy about it. Um, I've been one of those people that, you know, uh, a lot of folks try to uh, distance themselves from horror a little bit. You know, you'll occasionally get a director who will make a horror movie. He goes, well, I'm not a horror filmmaker. Or I don't want yeah. that label. And it's like, fuck off. Uh, no, you're not because you're not cool. That's why. Get the fuck out. Your movie may be great, but you suck. Um, uh, I like people who embrace it and go, I made a fucking horror movie. You know, I made something it meant, meant to be drank with a six pack of beer on a Friday night with friends uh, because that's what life is about. And uh, those are those are my people. That's my tribe. And so uh, I've uh, quite enjoyed being a part of that whole community. I also think it takes a certain kind of person to be like a horror filmmaker and a horror fan. And I don't mean that in the derogatory that I think a lot of people might use it as. I think it takes a certain kind of person to be that because horror fans are so much more open with their emotions and like they're putting horror filmmakers are so much quicker to put their fears on screen and they're confronting things and like they're laying themselves bare for audiences to see on a much deeper level, I think, than other filmmakers and horror fans are the ones that like eat that up and accept it. Like there is that communal feeling if we are going to use that word in the sense that like we are all being scared together. We are all be like sharing our fears together. And I think that's such a quicker bonding experience than any other genre that's out there. Joe Hill said it best. Um, and I've quoted this multiple times. And I think it's the single most important uh, distillation of horror uh, is that horror is not about extreme sadism. It's about extreme empathy. And that's what what links horror fans and horror filmmakers together. We're all empathetic people. You have to care about other people in order to scare people. It's just part of the the, the concept. It's baked in. Um, you do have those weird fringes that weirdly most people think are most of the horror community. And they're really kind of the weird outsiders, which are the, uh, the, the people who just love the sadism, who just love the violence, who just love the gore and don't like the other parts. Uh, but there's such outliers in the community and not really at the center of what we do. Uh, and they kind of creep the rest of us out. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, it's uh, uh, that's what you're talking about. It's it's we're just an empathetic community. And I want to talk a little bit about you, you talked about being lucky to do the three types of writing that you do. Um, you know, I'm always curious when I talk to people because Donato and I are day jobbers. I work in marketing. So I talk a lot about, you know, the being nine to five, creating content and then from uh, five to nine, you know, creating film criticism, creating culture criticism, the ways that that scratches different itches in my brain, the ways that that I get to use different muscles in terms of the writing process. You know, how are how are your three professional identities that you've had over the years sort of delineated for you? Does it feel like you're doing a version of the same thing three different ways? Does it feel like you're doing three distinct different things, sitting down to work on your next book, working on a screenplay, trying to articulate in a long form piece of content or a piece of writing why a movie is good or bad? Is, is it is it all coming from the same place for you or are you using different muscles? Are you conscious of the fact that you're switching between gears? Oh, it's very, it's all very different. Um, it's, and that's, that's kind of why I've been so satisfied doing all three is they are very different muscles. That's why I still do a podcast. Um, you know, I still do a movie podcast because, uh, uh, I do like talking about film and I like breaking down film in a way that you don't, you use, you use some of those muscles in the telling of stories, but you don't get to show it. Um, you know, it's, it's like being a magician and not being able to explain the magic tricks. So I have a I have a podcast where I get to go and talk about how you invent a magic trick. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's uh, uh, I quite enjoy that. And writing books and movies are two very different things. You yeah. know, you learn a lot from both of them and they inform both of them. You know, um, my literary style bleeds into uh, my writing of screenplays. Uh, and my rigid structure as a screenwriter has been bleeding into my books. And that's why my books have gotten faster and faster paced as I've gone on. You know, my my first book uh, uh, was I'm proud of it and people really liked it. But from then on, every book I write, people are like, oh, this is my favorite book of those. Oh, this is my favorite book of yours. And oh, I, I, I sat down and I read this and I was done by nighttime. I couldn't put it down. Um, you know, that's what you, uh, the, a uh, 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 a terrible phrase that everyone now loves, uh, unput downable was a, mm. uh, quoted by the New York times. And, and several people said that about my last book and that meant the world to me. And I, that came from, uh, a lot of my, uh, the structure that I just learned as a screenwriter. So yeah, they're all very different things together. They're, they're all different and they're all different parts of my life. And also, a lot of people don't realize it. Uh, there are people who have read my books who don't realize my movies are by the same writer. Uh, I remember uh, Mark Miller followed me on Twitter and uh, and I thought that was great. And we were talking back and forth for months until he said, wait, wait, I just looked at your handle. You're not the massive worm for Maine at Cool News, are you? And I was like, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. I read your stuff all the time. Holy shit. You're also a screenwriter. It's like, wait till you find out about the novels. You're like, what? Yeah. Um, and so it's very much, uh, uh, you know, living different lives and having different fan bases. Um, and sometimes they cross and sometimes they don't. Um, and uh, that's very interesting. Is every, the, the weirdest part is every once in a while when I meet someone uh, or someone will hit me up online and be like, oh, hey, I just got to say, I'm a huge fan. And I have to kind of be a little coy and fish a little to find out what they're a fan of um because i can't be like oh yes you're a fan of the the great c robert cargill writer of many things it's like oh they like my movies or oh they're they're a big book reader and and they like one of my books uh or they're a movie fan and have read my reviews or listened to my podcasts i still have people who come up to me and talk to me about spill this uh website i co-founded in 2006 that ran till about 2013 um i uh scott's always weirded out because we'll go places he's like people just recognize you and they don't recognize you for your movies they don't recognize you for your books it's that podcast you did long before i met you (laughs) and so um uh yeah so it's it, it is a little weird uh being having three different identities three different lives um and that just being my work identities outside of my home identity and who i am there um uh and then there's people who uh actually uh, over the last few years have gotten to know me solely as a writing advice guy who gives writing advice on Twitter. Like that's how people have come to know me and they know I'm a writer, but I'm not really into horror. So I haven't seen your movies, but I really like your Twitter. That's like, great. That's rad. You know, you, you like something I've done. That's, that's all you can ask for. So uh, yeah, it is a, it's, it's very weird managing three different um, writing selves, but also if I didn't do it, I'd probably go a little mad. So well, we start, we started this conversation, you know, by talking about social media too, and I'm kind of curious because you know the 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 film critic to filmmaker tradition dates all the way back to the beginning of film history. French New Wave, Peter Bogdanovich, there are legends that have been doing this for for a hundred years plus. Right now, with social media, um, both in the publishing world, and I'm married into the publishing world. My wife works for Penguin Random House, and in the film world, those lines have become 
problematic, I think, for some creators who are un- unable or unwilling to unplug and sort of let something go out into the world once they've made a film or made a book. You know, there's that tendency to like have the feedback, which isn't always in good faith, and have that create kind of like problems and controversy. So I'm, I'm curious as, as somebody who also came up critiquing, reviewing other people's work, you know, approaching things in good faith, finding value, finding faults. Has that changed, impacted, affected the way that you react to how people are reviewing, absorbing, discussing, talking about your work as both a writer and a screenwriter? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, nice. very much. But in the opposite way that people anticipate. Um, uh, when you've been a film reviewer for a decade and you have rubbed shoulders with all the other critics in the industry and you've gone to war with them uh, over concepts and things like that. By the time you get to making your own movie, you don't really care much what the critics think about it. You care on the whole, like, do people in general like the movie? You know, the Rotten Tomato score is a really good kind of metric on that of like, did people like it? Did people not like it? The percentage isn't as important. Uh, specifically, like Scott and I like to talk about the fact that a 60 to high 70s movie is kind of the sweet spot because that oh, means yeah. you tried something interesting and certain people just didn't get it. Uh, but overwhelmingly people did. Uh, whereas when you're talking about like a 95 to 100% movie, you're like, oh, that's going to be really entertaining, but is it going to be great? Is it going to be something, you know, it, it's something that everybody likes that could be inoffensive. You know, there's plenty of movies that have gotten like 99%, you know, had Armand White be the only person who disliked it. Um, and then you watch and you're like, yeah, that was really good. I liked it. I, I didn't love it. I don't need to watch it again. But I, it was a perfectly wonderful, inoffensive movie and a great way to spend a Saturday night. Um, and, you know, you, you run into those movies. Uh, but so uh, but yeah, so you pay attention to that stuff. But, you know, I, I remember, uh, you know, I had a friend who uh, absolutely did not like one of my movies. And he's like, I'm really sorry. I have to review it negatively. And I'm like, that's fine. And he's like, that doesn't bother you. And I was like. Dude, we didn't agree on great movies. You hated great movies that I had nothing to do with. Why would I take your opinion seriously now in my own movie? Like, I'm not going to take this personally. You like what you like. You don't like what you don't like. And and you write the honest review. Just don't be a dick in the review, you know? And that's the, that's the, the big difference between a good reviewer and a bad reviewer is, you know, um, is, you know, some people will take it personally that they don't like a movie that, you know, and feel they need to be cruel to the filmmakers. Uh, I know that there's three reviews in my history that just sound angry and I wish I could erase from history, go back and smack that version of Cargill for being a dick um, because that was bad Cargill. Um, But so, you know, the only ones you ever really take personally are the ones that are really bad criticism that you know are bad criticism. There's a time review of Sinister that has needled me for, um, for over a decade purely because... It's a two and a half star review. It's not a negative review, but it was a bad review because the person was like, you know, out of South by Southwest, everybody loved this movie. I thought it was really special. I thought it was a steak of a movie and it turned out to only be a hamburger. And so, you know, I was just disappointed that it didn't, you know, make me a a tuna fish sandwich at lunch. You know, it was very much like this did not. It was just a horror movie. And it was like, yeah, that's what we made. Like you let your review is literally I got hyped by other people's reviews and I don't know how to temper expectations, even though that's my fucking job. 
Yeah. Um, so that review bothered me. There's people who slag the movie that I'm like, that's fine. There's a, a classic uh, British critic who had been around forever and who really tore into my uh, tore into the movie. And I watched his review and I was like, oh, that's a really great negative review of our movie. There's some, you know, some solid points. But, it, you know, I get it. It's a guy who's been watching horror movies for 40 years. We're coming at the tail end of that for him and we're borrowing from all that stuff and he's seen it done better. That's fair. That's fine. Uh, that's a fine review. Uh, but it's a two and a half star review that was just like, uh, uh, really? Really? You're going to review the hype and not the movie? God damn it. Um, so that's the type of thing that will get to you is the the, the personal stuff. Um, and a lot of that stuff over time, you just start laughing off. You just know that there's a group of critics out there that just don't like me and Scott's movies. They just don't. They don't like me. They don't like Scott. Um, and, uh, they've said so publicly multiple times and then they keep reviewing our movies negatively and we go, ah, fuck it. We'll lose 6% on Rotten Tomatoes because those 12 guys, who cares? Um, and, uh, uh, and so you learn to like, let that stuff roll off. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it really, it did temper. It's, you know, I, I see critics as humans and not as, uh, and for the humans they are, instead of seeing them as an aggregate or seeing them as a, uh, um, seeing them as a response to my movie. Uh, and you know, it's, uh, it's very easy for filmmakers who haven't been in that world to look at it like comments, uh, or Twitter posts where somebody s says something shitty to you. You're like, why the fuck would you do that? Why would you say something shitty about me on the internet? Like, what was the point of that? Well, they feel that same way about the movie. Like, why would you write this negative review about my movie? Like, why would you talk to me like that? Uh, and, uh, when you start to get to know critics, you really do understand what's what and who's who and how they feel about things and go, well, you know, I've been, you know, black phone came out and someone's like, oh, we got a negative review from so-and-so. I was like, of course we did. He, he hates these kind of movies. Like, yeah. Why are you, why are you worried about it? Like he was always going to negatively review this movie. It's, you know, and not, not out of spite and like, why, of course he hates our movie, but like, yeah, he's, this is not his thing. So, uh, I'm not going to be bothered by it. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that's, that's how it's impacted me and how it's affected me is it, it really is, uh, seeing, you know, I also, the other, the other part of it is, um, as a, uh, as a critic, um, and as a filmmaker, you find the people whose opinions really matter to you, the filmmakers and the critics in particular, like just that handful of a dozen people. You know, uh, if I if I get a, an email in the middle of the night from Edgar Wright that he really dug the movie, I'm like, oh, I fucking did it. All right. Yeah. You know what? Oh, that's uh, you know, it doesn't matter who doesn't like the movie because Edgar dug it and he's my tribe. And, uh, you know, there's a couple a lot of reviewers in the community, big and small, uh, whose opinions I just love so much that when they dig one of my things, it, it really makes my day. Um, and that's kind of what you start looking for. You look for the validation from those people whose work you particularly love. Um, and, uh, and that becomes, uh, the, the juice on it rather than the rotten tomato score. Um, that just becomes the, are the producers happy with it? And am I going to get to make another movie? Okay. I am. Okay, great. So the validation comes from, Oh, I read this review by this critic I love and, and it just made my day. So, so that's, that's pretty much how my 10 years as a film critic has impacted how I deal with it. I mean, it's also a very healthy way of looking at it because it's like if you go on the film critic side, it's something that, you know, I have talked to people and I have struggled with in the sense that I for too long paid attention to the people who weren't 
paying attention to me and not the people who were. And it's like, you have to focus on the validation. You have to focus on the ones who like actually do care about you. And like, since I started doing that, it's been so much healthier in my, like, as I go through my journey and through my career of the stuff that like your editors are paying are the ones paying you to do work. Your editors like your work. That's really all that matters at the end of the day, but it's also good to have validation outside of that. And yeah, it's been a, you know, I think it's no matter what creative outlet you have, you know, you have to figure out a way to do it healthily. And that's, something that on any side is going to be hard to do. So to find that is really important. And like, you know, I, I think a question I do want to ask on your side as well, because again, you wear so many hats and you've done so many things throughout your life. And was it hard to, you know, quote unquote, walk away from film criticism in the sense that I kind of feel like once you really hit a rhythm being a critic and you're seeing movie after movie, banging out reviews, like, I don't know about you, but like, it gets a little addictive to me. <laughs> And like, I have that thought of like, can I do this forever? Is this a thing that is my end goal? Am I going to do it until I die? So I don't know, like, like, what was that thought process of, I am now going to go on to the next step in my journey? Like, was that scary? Was that easy? Like, I'm just curiosity. I was active. I spent two years trying to get out of film criticism. Um, I wanted to leave and I wanted to leave uh, because I was in a different world than you guys had been in. Um, Film criticism was very different in the aughts. Um, and I saw that it was collapsing. Uh, I saw what was happening. I saw what was happening on the internet. I saw what social media was doing. I saw what Rotten Tomatoes was doing to the industry. And I said to myself in 2008, um, in five years, there's not going to be a job for a guy like me. Uh, I'm going to be, you know, pushing 40. I'm going to be, uh, 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 you know, pushing 40 as a white guy. And that demographic is going to shrink as we have larger demographics of everyone else in here. And it's just going to be me and a couple other guys I came up with stabbing each other, trying to get the same job. And I don't want to be that guy. And I don't want to be in that environment. And I also don't want to see what's going to happen to the pay. Uh, Cause that happened too. Um, you know, uh, I, I've seen what some of you guys are getting paid and it's literally the same thing I was getting paid 25 years ago. Like that's it, that that's hard. Um, you know, I was making a middle-class, uh, life back at the time and making the same as my wife who had a good job. And so we were doing great. Um, and I saw that that was going to go away. And so I was like, I need to find my way out of this while I still have a platform, while I still have, you know, uh, connections in an audience. And before, you know, I end up trying to scrape and bow to find whatever job I, I can, uh, or even worse, have to go back to punching the clock, uh, because, you know, I got into this very young, so I really didn't have any other professional experience. It's like, oh, I'm a professional film critic. It's like, oh, great. Can you work a deep fryer? Um, so uh, so it was one of those things where that's where I started writing my book. And Scott had ended up reading my book and uh, was like, oh, I'm going to help you get this published. And we ended up uh, at uh, uh, in Vegas the same weekend. We got together for drinks. He said, hey, I'm, I got this guy, talk, a couple guys talking to me about making a movie. Uh, I've had this idea. Can I bounce it off you and get your professional opinion? He said, sure. And I gave him my notes. So he said, I've had this movie rattling around in my head for a couple of years. Can I get your professional opinion? He goes, okay, everybody pitches me once. Here's your one time. Pitch me. And I pitched him Sinister. And uh, he literally sold it to Jason Blum in the room a week and a half later. Um, and uh, within two months, I was like, oh. I have a screenwriting career now. I don't know that I can be a film critic anymore. And I did my last, I did and published my last interview, a, an interview with Greg Matola in, uh, in 2011. Um, and uh, that was, that was the end of my career. 
and uh, it was very easy to walk away from. I still had that itch, though, for a couple of years. I was like, you know, a movie would come up and I'm like, I have opinions uh, and they're strong opinions and I must share them. And it's like, Cargill, you can't really do that anymore. You know, it's uh, you're in a different part of the industry. You're, you know, it's, but I have opinions. Uh, and then so uh, me and uh, Brian Salisbury were sitting on my couch having a couple beers and I was griping about the fact that I did miss that critic part of my life. And uh, uh, I, I should do a podcast or something. Because what would you do a podcast about? You know, I do about the those weird ass movies that nobody talks about that I love. That uh, uh, you know, like Battle Truck. And he goes, "What the fuck's Battle Truck?" I'm like, "Exactly." I do a podcast where I talk about Battle Truck and Megaforce and and the Final Terror and all these crazy movies that nobody's ever seen. Um, that you know, I'm the guy carrying the torch for. And he goes, "Well, I'd do that with you." And we've been doing that for nine and a half years since. So. Um, uh, it's uh, it has uh, uh, scratched that itch very well, where I get to sit down and talk about movies, but movies outside of the 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 sphere, so that I don't offend anybody, and and it doesn't feel like I'm shitting on another filmmaker if there's something that I'm joking about or not liking about their movie. They're like, ah, I made that movie 20 years ago. Yeah, I fucked that part up. Um, you know, that's been the uh, the the reaction. So uh, uh, that's that's kind of how I I dealt with the separation um and uh and still can scratch that itch that that was the reviewer who has big opinions on on story and and construction and and cinematography and can can talk about those things while at the same time maintain my professionalism of being in this industry and being a part of it and also being criticized equally and uh taking the task for my mistakes and the things that i did wrong and uh so that's 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 kind of how I did that. Well, I think you've teed us up really nicely to talk on a podcast about the final terror. Um, and as somebody who is 39 years old, works outside of the industry and has decided to dedicate time and money to creating a podcast on movies that nobody else is looking for. I I feel like this is going to be a really, really good conversation is what I'm trying to say. Good, good. It was this was, it was kind of a tough one because, um, you know, when Matt invited me and I was like, OK, so. I know the movie. I've got the movie. I It's a movie that I've been wanting to do on my own podcast for a while. No one's ever heard of it. And I go uh, to Rotten Tomatoes, 11 reviews. Uh, and I was like, ah, oh, well, oh, you know what? Uh, oh, I'll do this movie. This movie will be 11 reviews. I was like, what? And then I'm like, ah, all right. And I sit around for a few. Oh, I know that. 11 reviews. <laughs> Three in a row, 11 reviews. And I was like, ah. The final terror? Did anyone review nine reviews? And I'm like, nine done reviews. in. <laughs> and we're golden. All right. So we're gonna take a quick break. And when we come back, we are gonna talk about the movie with nine reviews slipping in underneath that radar, but just only the final terror. We'll be back in just a second. Hey everyone. As always, we want to take this time on the podcast to say thank you so much to our patrons who help support us financially who make sure that we have the budget we need in order to pay our incredible writers at CertifiedForgotten.com. Uh, this week, we got a bumper request from Christy, who asked, if you were creative director of Halloween Horror Nights for a year, what would you do? And you know what? I've never been to Halloween Horror Nights. It's not part of my annual tradition, but it definitely is one for Matt Donato. So I'm going to let him take this away. If I was the creative director of Halloween Horror Nights this year, I think I would do something a little more outrageous and 
I don't know, like Evil Dead Rise is pretty popular this year amongst the horror fans, and especially me loving Evil Dead Rise. I think it would be really cool not only to get an Evil Dead Rise maze, but do an entire takeover of Evil Dead, and we can do mazes for every single movie because they're like kind of really distinctive and unique. You know, you get a medieval one, you get the really dark Fede Alvarez one, you get to go back to the cabin of the originals, and then you get the uh, Los Angeles apartment-based one. So I, I think that would be such a cool homage, such a cool ode to the entire Evil Dead franchise to really let them go crazy and take a entire Halloween Horror Nights and live the entire franchise from start to finish so far. I mean, we even have the show in there, so like, there's so much to play around with. There's so much history there in Evil Dead. I don't know. I think that would be a really massive swing to dedicate an entire Halloween Horror Nights to a single property. And, I don't know, I think if anyone would make it work, it's Evil Dead. Alright, welcome back. So, the film that Cargill has brought for us to talk about today is The Final Tear. I got a blurb that I prepared, so I'm going to go ahead and read it, just so that I get all the pertinent details about the film. After sitting on the shelf for two years, during which time star Daryl Hannah became a sensation and Ridley Scott's Blade Runner, Andrew Davis's The Final Tear finally hit theaters in 1983. The film follows a group of Forest Service employees. I don't know if that's correct. The patches were confusing. That's what I took from it. Who head into the woods for a weekend of camping, rafting, and marijuana. As is so often the case in a post-Friday the 13th slasher, one evening the group shares an urban legend about a terrible tragedy and a mother-son duo rumored to haunt the woods. But when the campers find themselves stalked through the forest by an unknown killer, the group must brush up on their survival skills or die underneath the open sky. Cargill. Fucking love this movie, man. Uh, talk uh, to me about why you wanted to to bring this onto the show. Well, this is one of those movies that uh, is forgotten. Uh, it's it's kind of known in my sphere, my generation. You know, the Brian, uh, me and Brian Collins have famously gone back and forth on this movie because he fucking hates it, um, and he's wrong. Uh, but yes. uh, uh, but he's been he's been on the podcast. I should say he's been on the podcast. So you're more than welcome to talk shit about it. It's all in the family. At this oh, point. the thing is, I love Brian. Uh, I have great respect for him. Uh, but this is the movie that we he's like, Cargill, you're just fucking wrong. That movie's terrible. And the thing I love about this movie is. Is twofold. One, it is a movie that everyone involved in this movie is someone interesting with a large career in the industry, and this is absolutely not the movie they're known for. Uh, not no, There's not one person in this movie that it's like, oh yeah, I did this movie, The Final Terror, and that was the movie I did. They all have done all sorts of other things, and this is the movie I guarantee they don't talk about. Uh, two, it so the history of slashers, it begins really with Giallo, um, and then that influences filmmakers. We get um, Texas Chainsaw, we get Last House on the Left. That begets this, that begets that. We end up with Halloween. Uh, a filmmaker named Sean S. Cunningham sees Halloween. He goes, I can fucking do that. And he makes Friday the 13th. And there's this, I don't even remember where it's from, but there is, I can't remember if it was from a movie or a documentary, but it's something a bunch of us have quoted a lot of times because we all saw it like 12 years ago. And it said in 1980, Paramount released Friday the 13th. And it made X amount of dollars. 1981, 34 slasher films were released in American theaters and not one of them lost money. Um, and the, that 34, I made it a mission at one point about a decade ago to watch all 34. And I have. I've seen all of them. Um, uh, it's not a great year. 
I'll say that uh, the the sheer the the number one film of that era is clearly My Bloody Valentine. It is an absolute classic. It is an absolute fucking banger. But I love that this movie was made in that spate and then was put on a shelf because nobody knew what to do with it because you've got um, a brilliant screenwriter, Ron Shusset, who is known uh, for Alien and Dead and Buried and working with Dan O'Bannon. He was uh, one of the O'Bannon's collaborators for a lot of years. Um, he's one of the screenwriters here. And then you have Andrew Davis, who would go on to direct The Fugitive. And they decided they wanted to make an anti-slasher. It's This is structurally not a slasher film. It has all the hallmarks of a slasher film. But the minute the characters realize what danger they're in, they make all the decisions that the audience would be yelling at the screen for you to do. And they do the smart thing. Someone says, I'm going to go to the bathroom. Not alone, you're not. Uh, you know what? We got to get out of here. Let's go to the bus. You know, they keep making all these choices that are the smartest thing to do and then being foiled along the way by the person stalking them. And I'm just I'm so fascinated by the structure of this movie and how smart it is and how in 1981 people looked at it and goes, this isn't a Friday the 13th movie. I don't know what the fuck this is. And so yeah. it shot on the shelf, not because it was bad, but because they. Audiences didn't understand how smart it was because they hadn't caught up to see enough of these movies to know that this movie was riffing on that already in 1981. Um, and but not being bold about it, not being, you know, tongue in cheek and big and splashy. There's a couple of horror comedies that came out in 81 that were making fun of these kind of slasher films. And this is not that this is and it's not winking at the camera going, ah, oh, you get it. It's too smart for its own good. And so that's why I wanted to bring it here because it's such a weird, smart little movie. So I, uh, I'm i glad you you framed it the way that you did because my takeaway from this film, controversial opinion here, is I think that this actually, it is a slasher. I'm not going to pretend like it isn't, but it's not a very good slasher and it doesn't really seem to be interested in being a slasher. When I was in college, one of the best classes that I took was a Vietnam War in film and television with a professor named Dr. Harry Haynes, who was a Vietnam vet. He'd served during the war. He'd served as an openly gay member of the service during the war. And so he had some really understandably complicated feelings, not only about military, but also about Vietnam itself. And a lot of the films that he taught talked about the kind of national trauma and the unpacking and trying to understand what had happened during Vietnam, especially in the years that followed in film and television. I think that The Final Tear belongs right alongside Southern Comfort. I think it belongs right alongside um, the first Rambo movie 100%. in terms of First Blood, in terms of movies that are, yeah, sure, it's, it is a slasher. It does the Friday the 13th thing. It's got the like the, the fake out about who's the killer, but it's so much to me about several characters who are replaying out the war you know you have the the main character the one main camper who's a vietnam veteran Zorch. Who, and like immediately is back there in the jungle and the film is dealing with that kind of stuff in a way that i think is is just genuinely interesting so yes it does slasher things but the you know i was reading about the film that beginning the cold open that they tacked on to try and make it feel more like a horror film i think yep. is the worst thing that ever happened to this movie yeah. because it set it up for something that it really wasn't yeah, no, absolutely. And, and the thing is, it shares an actor with Southern Comfort. 
Um, it has that same kind of vibe. I was going to bring up that element. I'm so glad you got into it because, yeah, there is a lot of Vietnam trauma in here. There's that great moment uh, towards the end where Zorich goes, this is why we lost the war. Um, you know, when he's going off on his trip, uh, it's, you know, th- that is all there. And again, it's such a smart movie uh, that people did not know what the fuck they were watching. Uh, but yeah, no, you're right. Um, I mean, the, the the nice thing about the opening is when once you've seen the movie, when you see the opening again, it there's a special kind of magic. Uh, one of the other things I love about this movie is there's almost no wasted dialogue at all. Yeah. Like there's almost nothing that isn't setting up something else. Like we open, you know, one of the first conversations of the movie is about these stolen peaches. And little would you know the stolen peaches play into the whole fucking movie and when you go back and rewatch that opening scene a woman gets cut down by a bunch of peach lids like it's it's like they like we have to tack on the scene well let's make it tie into the rest of the movie so let's bring back the peaches again um and i just love stuff like that in this movie um but yeah yeah there's all that vietnam stuff is absolutely fucking there uh, in fact, that's one of the weirder parts of the movie. One of the things I don't think work, which you had brought up, the one really confusing thing about the movie is who the fuck are these guys? Yeah. Are they uh, are are they firefighters? Are they volunteers? Are they, you know, college kids on a break? Are they uh, on parole and this is work duty? Like, I don't quite understand what their role is um, and what they're doing. And so you're like, wait, how old are they supposed to be? If this guy was in Nam, but if this movie was made in 81 and we got out of Nam in 75, like, how the fuck old is this guy? Um, and so that was the one that's the one part of the movie where I'm like, OK, this is where I look the other way is yeah. this portion of the movie. So I guess for me, uh, the takeaway there is like I am on board as well. Uh, I enjoy this film and I enjoy it as the anti slashers you've both been talking about, because if you're looking at it in, you know, direct correspondence with Friday the 13th. You know, you have the son, you have the mother. There are exact parallels there. But the way that it doesn't want to be the kind of slasher that slashers became after Friday the 13th, like I've talked before on this podcast that, you know, a bunch of filmmakers learned the wrong lessons from the early best slashers and they went the way of the full body count. It's all gore, no nothing else. Like it's all titillation. So you see these slashers and that's why I'm forever obsessed with like Black Christmas and uh, films of the early slasher era that were about the whodunit, that were about actually setting up a mystery and having characters that make good decisions instead of just slashing people to bits. And don't get me wrong, I love my midnight slashers. I love having fun with those kind of pizza and beer movies. But when you watch something that is able to like take you on this journey where the characters, as you said, Cargo, like they're making the right decisions, but they're still getting foiled. Like there's actual thought into an entire process here where like the killer is one step ahead of people doing the right thing. That is so much more engaging to me. Yeah. Yeah. No. And that's the Giallo of it. Like yeah. that's the, you know, cause that's the big Giallo influence early, you know, uh, in early uh, slasher films is it's the trauma that creates this in people. Um, and that's what's so fucking, you know, amazing about Halloween is it's the absence of that. And that's the damage that Halloween did. In addition to what was great about Halloween was people were like, wait, you, they don't need to be traumatized. They could just be nuts. They could just he's just evil. And it's like, well, yeah, if you do it right, if you're John Carpenter, you could say, yes, he's just pure evil. You know, you when you have Donald Pleasance delivering that dialogue, you can get away with it when you're doing it with 
you know, people from summer stock, not necessarily. Um, and, uh, and that's definitely, uh, uh, that is definitely a big part of it. And I do. Yeah. It's this movie, the kills, the kills. There's one good kill in the movie and it's the last kill. That's it. <laughs> like if oh, you, you don't go so into good. this movie for kills. It's so good though. Like if, if ever a movie deserved to only have one good kill, this movie deserves to have one good kill because that is one fucking great kill. Yeah. I remember the first time I saw it, I was, uh, uh I was drunk. Uh, I was the, it was four in the morning. I was just, I was watching this because I was like, I've never seen this one. I'll watch this one. I haven't, I'm on beer 13. Let's go. And I remember that happening and pausing and go, wait, that, that did just fucking, that did just fucking happen. That, that, that's not how this movie ends. So I go back 10 minutes and I watch the last 10 minutes and go, go I must've missed something. Uh, and nope, nope, did not. <laughs> the movie just goes, Hey, by the way, um, we're all, it's over. That's the movie. That was it. Wrap it up. Let's go. Roll the credits. We're good. And it's like, holy shit. That's that's a bold fucking ending. Like that's that is a bold fucking ending. And uh, so yeah, from that point on, the next day I was like, okay, I got to watch this sober and make sure uh, I'm not out of my mind. That that this is really good, right? And I was like, holy shit, this movie's really good. <laughs> I'm really happy with this. So yeah, it's uh, um, it was a a, a, a wonderful fun. Well, for me, like a standout is going to be like Joe Pantoliano doing Egger and the way that. So once again, you know, we're going to talk spoilers here. So if you do want to get off and go watch the film, go do that. We're going to talk about the ending specifically right now because it's on Tubi. You can watch it's on, it on Tubi, Tubi, right? It's easy. Yeah. Go go stream on Tubi. But if you're still it's here, on Shutter. you can watch it without ads on Shutter if you have Shutter. Brilliant as well. If you're still here, though, I'm going to talk about Joe Pantoliano, Pantoliano very quickly because he Hell is yeah. the red herring. He is the upfront. You're like, yeah, this is the weirdo. This is definitely going to be the killer. This is definitely the person, blah, blah, blah. But then as the film goes on, you start to question it. You start to question, is he the killer? Is this actually what's happening? And I, again, like for me, the way slashers went over the years, you lose that magic. You lose all of that. It just becomes the killer is the killer. The kills are the kills. And, and that's what you're here for. So when you have someone who is so able to play the creepy bus driver who is just running around drunk screaming at people who again clearly is being positioned as the evil force in this film and yet there is able to be doubt there is able to be question and you know there are clues along the way that you will you will find and you will clue into but like i am just so obsessed with that role and that performance honestly it's the big draw of this movie is seeing joey pants joey pants. going Going as big as you've ever seen him. Here's a guy who's been like, he's got a legendary career, uh, done so many great movies, uh, you know, in some of the biggest films of all time, like Matrix, uh, just uh, such a classic answer, actor. Everyone has worked with him, loves him. Uh, you call him Joey Pants. That's that's his name. Uh, and uh, and to see him early in his career going so big and chewing up the scenery so hard. And having so much fun doing it uh, is just such a delight. It's just he's just really going for it. And I love it. But also the character is the tragic character of this movie, because from the beginning, you he tells you he tells the we shouldn't go here. Let's go to a better. Place. This is really dangerous out there. You don't want to go there. He knows his mom is there. He knows his mom is nuts. He doesn't want to hurt his mother. And he doesn't want his mother to hurt these people, even though he doesn't like them. Like, that's the thing is he doesn't even like these people. 
Like, you know, some of them really, truly piss him off and he doesn't want to see them get hurt. And that is what's really interesting. So that final bit at the end where you see him on the ground having just been beaten nearly to death and the whole thing he was trying to do was protect everyone from everyone um, is just this kind of sad tragedy um, while you get that fantastic kill. (laughs) <laughs> it's, just, it's just like gnarly. Uh, so yeah, I love I love Joey Pants in this movie. Joe Joe Pantoliano is just so fucking good. You talked about some of the uh, other films that that he's made. You know, I want to talk a little bit about Andrew Davis too, the director of this. Mm-hmm. And you know, I feel like maybe Cargill, you know a little bit about a career arc that takes you from independent horror to blockbuster filmmaking. Maybe I don't know. Maybe that's something you have a little, a little bit. bit of experience with. Ooh. What? Are, what do you see in this film from Davis as a director that shows where he was going to end up with like huge, like generation defining action movies like The Fugitive, but also like Under Siege, like Under Siege is a personal favorite of mine. I, you know, I have some opinions on on what we see here that says, oh, yeah, this is it's not a mistake that this guy would go on to make these movies. But I'm curious, we don't normally see somebody move from this sphere of low budget horror to the upper echelons of, of Hollywood filmmaking. So what did you see from Andrew Davis in, in his second feature film? Well, I mean, first of all, the way he frames a lot of the shots, uh, a lot of the interesting visual information that's there. One of my favorite shots, there's two favorite shots in, my, in this movie of mine, and they're both in the final sequence. Um, and one is all six, uh, six of the, the, the campers all together up on the big log together in the yes. rain. And just seeing them together framed in the rain, um, just the pain on their faces, just, you know, here's this low budget movie, but here's this shot that feels like it's in a huge movie. Like this is a shot that could have been in Predator. This is a shot that's in one of those leagues of movies. This is the, the this is the eye that we'll see from Stanton when he goes on into the 90s and, and ascends uh, to, to make the films that he makes. Uh, also, the great shot where we see Zorich standing up on this big, huge, fuck all, like, redwood trunk of a tree. And then we see the the person in the ghillie suit climbing up behind. And the way it's framed and just the way it's just so cinematic in a way that these films aren't. Like, there's a number of slick 1981 slashers, but they don't look like this. They never feel big. They never feel expansive. And as low budget as this film clearly is, it has these moments where you really see that this is somebody when given the proper tools is going to make a big fucking movie. I love the first, I believe it's the first ghillie suit reveal uh, because you have the city slicker who's being fooled into howling to uh, let his buddies (laughs) know that, you know, they're still okay to steal the weed, but you you can say Adrian Zemed. Adrian Zemed of TJ Hooker and Grease 2. That is fair. That is fair. Howling at the moon with a great howl, by the way. It's a perfect wolf howl. Um, But that first shot where he's laying on a log kind of like a little bit far away from the camera and the ghillie suit just like right in the front of the foreground of the camera just like starts to walk away from the tree. And it's not hard to catch, but it's such a subtle thing to me. And like, I, I just love the way that shot is composed alone. And yeah. Like there's so many things in there. The way the cabin is shown and all that like visual information you get so quickly when you walk into the cabin and you know, it's not just cobwebs and stuff like that. Production design tells you immediately like, yeah, no, there's some fucked up shit here. Oh yeah. Yeah. Speaking of the production design, that great wolf head with the snake crawling through like this is 1981. None of that's digital and none of that's fake. Like that's, 
that's uh, they put the snake there and they got that shot just right and it looks so fucking creepy. And yeah, that that whole cabin is it, it's just icky. You feel dirty watching that scene. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's some good stuff. I feel like when I watch a, a film like this, and, and I'll echo what both of you said in terms of the quality of the shots, but I think increasingly the thing that I notice that speaks to me of talent is time. When I see time on screen, and I think shots where the group of campers, kids, whatever they are going down the river. And then in the background, there's somebody in a ghillie suit who stands up at the end of the shot. That is a difficult reset. That feels like a difficult reset. It takes you time and energy to do that again and again in order to get it right. And so when I watch a movie like this and I see information in the screen that takes time to set up and time to reset and time to like get it for a lot of horror and it's not a knock, you're moving fast, you're moving budgets, you're being, you're moving on to the next shot as soon as you can. It's, speaks to me as as a, a lover of horror and as an audience member when I see somebody that's like this is worth the effort this is worth the time that I'm going to take this is worth you know adding to our day shoot in order to have this so that this thing in the foreground happens after this thing in the background has been happening for 30 seconds on screen that's what I increasingly find myself looking for, especially in smaller budget movies. When I see that, I'm like, somebody had to fight for that. That wasn't an accident. Mm-hmm. Somebody had to say, this is a good use of our time for the day. And I love it when I see it. Yeah. And this movie's just full of those. It's, it really, it just, it's, it just feels so big. And uh, even though it's clearly not like you're watching it and you're like, the kills, the, the, the early kills are just garbage they're just you know they're shot too tight they're just practically th- sprinkling blood on one of the actors um like it's really it's like oh yeah they, they don't have the money for this uh but to use the camera that way that was very smart and uh uh and and yeah no that that great ghillie suit stand up is just it's, uh yeah i do want to say oh sorry oh, i was just gonna say th- this is such a tasty movie there yeah. you go yeah, I mean, like, I am honestly surprised I liked it in the sense that the first time Adrian Zmed's character comes back, like, from being missing for a day. And, like, in, in normal slasher structure, sure, you've been out in the woods, you're dead. You're, you're, you're long gone. And in a film that already has a small body count, this guy just comes walking back a day later, like, hey, what's up? Like, at that moment, I was like, oh, fuck you. I was like, hold on, fuck you. I was like, that's that's not what we do here. But as we talked about before, as the film keeps going and it plays into all of those notes, I was like, I started to clue into what you were talking about before, Carl, about it being so smart about being the anti-slasher. And like, I think it is one of those films that you have to have a little patience for and you have to understand what it's doing. And if you are going and expecting the hack em up that we all know the 80s slashers as now, it's not going to you know tickle that fancy. But that's that's why it's good. I like the films that push back against the norm and, and the general and just go like, no, nah, we can do something different. Like it's possible. We're allowed to. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was a, it was a harder to find. It was an easy to find and hard to find anyone who's seen it movie years ago. And, and after some conversations started up with it, it's starting to like get around. I was really thrilled to see not only that it was on shutter, but to read the shutter description and to see it talking about it from that, that vantage point, because beforehand, like the, one of the problems with this movie is the poster and the title. Um, like, it looks like, and, and oh, did you guys by any chance, did you watch the trailer? No, I haven't watched the trailer. Briefly, the trailer. when it played before on like Amazon Prime, it kind of, or on Prime Video, it kind of showed a little bit of it, but yeah. The trailer makes it look like it's an alien or a Bigfoot movie. 
Like it really, like it lies. It lies. It is, it, it sits on a throne of lies. Um, it is, and you want, you look at it, it's like, oh, this must be a, a UFO movie. They're being chased through the woods by a UFO. All right, I'm all in. And then it's like, no, 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 it's nothing like that. Um, like, as you said, it's, it's closer to Southern Comfort than it is Friday the 13th. And, uh, and that's what's interesting about it. So that had worked against it for so long. And now to see that people are really embracing it for being that weird outsider piece of art this uh, you know samuel z arkoff movies are not this smart usually <laughs> they're 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 not meant to be smart that's probably why uh, arkoff left it on a shelf for two years he, he's like there's not enough boobs in this um and uh so to see it kind of get that respect and people start looking at it critically and going oh yeah no this is trying to be different this is trying to like that moment that you mentioned the adrian's Med moment it's supposed to piss you off it's supposed to be like i thought that guy was dead what is he doing alive why is he still alive and and it's like because we never saw him die that's why uh you know we already saw everybody die that died you know and but that great fake out of the, the everyone's like oh we thought you were dead and it's like oh no they're dead uh and then it's like oh wait not both of them are dead the other one's being kept and tortured Oh no, now that one's dead. And, you know, the way they play with that and do it in a way that is not typical of its time, I just find so fascinating. And it's just such a wonderful exercise in storytelling. So, last question for you, Cargill and, and Donato, too. We always like to end talking about the movie with talking about kind of its place in the current lexicon, the current canon of things. You know, it, it was interesting because when Donato told me that you had picked the final terror, um, I was a little surprised just because it's it's a little older than what I'm used to seeing. A lot of times on the podcast, people talk about like the direct-to-video generation stuff, stuff that's a little bit more recent that doesn't have kind of a consensus. But if you watch the film, the first thing you'll see, the opening title card for the movie that has been added by Shout Factory, is that there is no master. They had to cobble this together from archival. Pr- Maybe this was only on my version. They had to uh, cobble this together from collector's prints, 35 millimeter reprints from a couple of collectors. They chose like the best reels and cut those together in order to create the highest quality print that they could, which is still not incredibly high quality, depending on where you watch. So there's a lot of reasons why this movie has not had, we think of the 80s as done and dusted, right? Like we have examined every 80s horror movie we can. We know what's good. We know what's bad. It's time to move on. It's time for the 90s. There's a lot of good reasons why this movie hasn't necessarily had the day in court that even other films that came out in 81 or 83 did. So Cargill, all that brings me to the question talking about how this film finds its audience and where its place is in the landscape today. You know, where do you think the final terror sits? Does it have a chance at kind of entering that upper echelon of, of slashers or has that moment kind of come and gone from a cultural perspective? I think the moment's kind of come and gone. Um, you know, it's uh, what you said is absolutely true. And I've been feeling it myself. Like it's been one of those things like I'm one of those guys who's always got his ear, ear to the ground for that that weird lost film. Um, you know, I had a weird experience the other day where I just popped on uh, the Night Flight streaming service and found a weird movie I'd never seen before uh, that was I- entirely in my vein. And I'm like, the fuck is this? Like, this can't be very good. Uh, because I haven't heard of it or seen it. And then, you know, it's not good, but it's kind of great as a result. It's one of those. Um, yeah. uh, in fact, it's a movie so bad, it breaks the fourth wall in the final 12 seconds. And, and just and the the actor yells cut 
and that's the end of the movie. <laughs> and it's okay. like, what? Uh, but, but yeah, but you know, we've kind of gotten to a point where um, the only things left to find are people are finding old uh, shot on video only uh, movies and digging those up and finding the one of the 75 copies that were made. And that's kind of the last bit of archaeology left. Uh, so I think that moment is kind of passed with this one, but I think it has its place with cineasts like us, people who love genre from any era, who it's like, you know, there's a 1932 Michael Curtis slasher film. Yeah, let's go. Um, uh, and uh, this is this is for that crowd. This is that, you know, you know, when you when you talk to guys like I'm talking to now and they go, hey, what's a movie I've never seen before that I should watch? Final Terror. Um, that's one of, that's become my go to for the hardcores where it's like find something I've never seen before. Oh, oh, okay, let's try this. And then getting that reaction of like, oh, this is not what I thought I was getting into. And this is kind of delightful. Um, I think it has its place there. It is it is kind of that that wine for for uh, Sami uh, uh who uh, Somaliers uh, who uh, uh, like, oh, you haven't tried this vintage. Here's it's very rare and it's not for everybody. But I think it's for you, and that's where I think the place uh, its place in history is. Donato, are you are you uh, feeling the weird alcohol comparison? Because I know that is also sort of your area of expertise. Of course, I always am, and a hundred percent that does make sense. Yeah, like it's that th- it's that bottle you pull off the shelf that a lot of people haven't heard of, but like maybe some have, and it's going to impress most people, but the higher ups maybe not. But I think for me, like I, I didn't realize I knew what this film was from the very first shot. And I'm glad they kept it in because I was doing trivia, uh, Ted Gagan's trivia in New York one time. And like one of the first questions was that, that I think it was that image of the bike turned over and it was kind of just like, oh, you know, what what movies is from or whatever. But that is to say, like, that is a Michael, G- Michael Gingold or Ted Gagan question. And like that is them doing like the top level trivia of horror knowledge that has been stowed away forever. And at the time I was like, I don't fucking know. Like, of course, I, I have no idea what this is. This is a movie that's unheard of to me. So like that is where it's going to have that love. It's going to have the love of the, of the inner circle. But I think there is also like a possible rediscovery period in the sense that this can be tied to like the meta horror bust or like the meta horror boom, I guess I'll say of like movies that look back on prior films and say, okay, we're going to poke fun at them or we're going to like invert the structure or we're going to play around with this. Like I was saying before, this is a movie that wants to break the rules. It, it lives to break the rules. And that is what's so cool about it. And like, you know, if it came out in 1981, as you said, Cargill, like I'm sure that would have been one of the, like one of the only films doing what it was doing among the other 30 something. Like you have 30 something copycats and then one doing something different. I think there's a possibility that you could put that on and, you know, teach a whole class around films that were bucking trends before they were even trends. And I think there'd be something interesting there for academics and really hardcore horror fans. But yeah, for on the whole, like for any slasher fan or, you know, whatever you want to say, of like people looking for a certain type of film, it's not going to tickle that itch. Like it's not going to be there. So like you have to know what it is going in. And I don't for that reason alone, I think it's going to be hard to build a later in life resurgence. The only thing that I'll add to this discussion is if you are a Vietnam War fanatic and if you love representations on film, I really you got to see this. It really like if you love William Friedkin's Hunted, right, and you want that oh, kind yeah. of a vibe from something like this, you're going to get that from this movie. So, um, if if there is a horror slash war niche that speaks to you as a person, this is going to be your new favorite movie from the decade. I I promise you that. 
That is our podcast episode. That is the final tear. It is streaming on Shutter, apparently in a much better version than, than I watched on on Tubi, which is fine. Now I got to go watch it again. Cargo, uh, we've been wanting to have you on the show forever. Thank you so much for giving up your evening and joining us. I know that you have been active on Blue Sky. I know that you brought back your writer advice. So if folks want to connect with you, um, see what's up on you know coming up on the radar for you, but also get some of that good writerly advice that you're dispensing. What's the best place? Is it just blue sky all the time? Still on Twitter, Instagram, where are you? Oh, uh, well, I'm a little bit on Twitter for the news and such, but you know, we'll see how long that even is afloat and, and, and usable. Um, blue sky is where I really, uh, enjoy being. Um, so see Robert Cargill dot blue sky dot social. Um, uh, you can find me over there. Uh, you can find my podcast, uh, uh, which I am returning to. I, I've been on sabbatical for five months making a movie. And this weekend we are covering our first film uh, together uh, since I, I left. And uh, uh, that's uh, that's called Junk Food Cinema. And you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. This fall, uh, I have a short in the VHS 85 segment. Me and Scott decided we wanted to make some crazy fucking movie. And. Uh, uh, make the kind of thing that no one would ever let us make a hour long, ver- uh, an hour and a half long version of. So we went and made a gnarly Friday night fucking movie. Um, and so we hope you guys enjoy that. Uh, and uh, you can find my books wherever you buy your books. My latest one, Day Zero. Um, well, people seem to like that one, so uh, that's a good place to start. Uh, and that's pretty much uh, kind of where you can find my stuff. That's awesome, Donata. Where can people find your books? Uh, uh, you haven't written them. You haven't written them yet. Uh, I'm in one or two at this point. I wrote short stories. F you, Monagle. I do some writing. Sorry. I do Apologies. some. <laughs> I thought uh, it was a cute wait. little kick. I got to jump back real quick. I totally forgot. I'm actually, I've got a short story in a new book coming out in late July, Haunted Reels, uh, which is a whole bunch of us horror filmmakers who spent the pandemic on Zoom together on Thursday nights, uh, who I'm actually going to hang with here uh, when I'm done with you guys. Um uh, we decided to put a book together and we all wrote short stories. And so about uh, three dozen of us all contributed and uh, a lot of horror filmmakers, a lot of indie horror filmmakers, a um, uh, lot of really interesting folks. We all contributed. And uh, that comes out on July 25th. Oh, right around the corner. I'm going to tell Dave Lawson. You almost forgot to promote that. <laughs> <laughs> well, except the, the thing is, is he'll point out. He almost forgot to promote that. <laughs> Always the beacon of sunshine. Anyway, I am Matt Donato. You can follow me at Donato Bomb on Twitter, Letterboxd, Instagram, uh, Blue Sky, all the places. Not really on TikTok that much, but sure, follow me there anyway. Or follow my authority where all of my writing is, all the reviews that are going to be overflowing at this point because I have such a backlog to catch up on. IGN slash Film Blade Disgusting, all those sites. So you know where to find me. As for myself, this is the first time that I've signed off on an episode where I haven't shared my Twitter, but it's monogal at bluesky.app, which feels weird to say, but it, that's that's where I'm at for the foreseeable future. I'm not going to, I'm, I've made my decision. I'm, I'm sticking. And of course, you can follow the podcast or see some really excellent film criticism from some of our writers at certifiedforgotten.com. Uh, we love the support, you know, reading articles, sharing articles on whatever social media platform you're on is how we continue to grow our audience. So Thank you so much for supporting our writers and Cargill. It was great to have you on the show. You are always, our door is always open. If you ever got a movie that you just can't convince Brian to talk about on your podcast, uh, (laughs) you can bring it to us. We'll take it. I promise. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. It was, it was a great pleasure to be here. Tanada, take us out. Who stole my leg?